So the the two primary questions that arise uh, tonight in contemplating patience in our daily life is what is the right way of responding to things generally and when is patience not a useful practice and uh, both are excellent questions and neither of them are really small topics Um, I think uh, each one of us needs to come into a mature relationship with our own skill base and our capacity to respond to what's arising So there is no magic formula for the first question because there is no easy answer. So, you know, for myself, my capacity will change uh, daily or even hourly depending on a whole variety of circumstances. So if I haven't slept or if I've been up all night with a, you know, a, a strong headache or I've had some kind of a sickness, what I'm able to manage in the morning is going to be different than if I have some kind of resource you know, some kind of, uh, I feel rested, I feel nourished. <clears throat> so this is a, a perennial question, and it's useful getting a handle on how to approach it. How do you respond to what's arising? You know, when is it that you actually are interacting with something? And when is it that you let it be what it is and just allow it to do what it needs to do? And for me, the way in which I can decipher the way to relate to that question is is how strong is the mindfulness. So it's not related to the contents, it's related to the mindfulness. So when the mindfulness is very strong and very clear, incredibly strong, very difficult things can arise and they can just be known just exactly for what they are. And there doesn't need to be any kind of intervention or shifting or changing or or getting space or focusing or any of the kind of things that we do in order to get a little bit more perspective, have a little bit more space because the space is already present. Okay? But a lot of the times that's not where I'm at. And so when I'm not where that's not where I'm at, then I need to be able to be very discerning of where I actually am at and what I'm actually up to. So one of the ways of telling is is whether or not whatever is arising is causing one's behavior to move either towards or outside of the range of keeping proper precepts. So that's a a clear signal, you know. So if one's um, kicking the dog, you know, it's like, no. (laughs) Not okay, you know. (laughs) You know, if one's throwing keys at one's uh, partner, not okay, you know. It might be okay to go outside and kick the trash can, that's a different story, but you know, what one needs is to be very clear that what one's doing is not harmful in any kind of way, transgressing the precepts. If one is shredding another person, that's not okay. Okay. So, a very clear kind of reference point is precepts. The next reference point is what's actually happening energetically in the body. 
am I stable with the whole internal energetic enough so that I feel grounded with it or is it actually coming out of me in an out of control kind of manner so if it's coming out of me in an out of control kind of manner out of control is different than spontaneous and creative okay then there's not quite enough space and then it's useful to do interventions with what's arising in order that a little bit more space arise so that then what one is doing is actually centered and grounded and connected and then a little bit more appropriate. Okay. So when we were talking about generosity and we were talking about Sila, one of the kind of things that we keep coming back to is it's okay to get one's needs met but not if it's at other people's expenses. So it's okay to share what's important to us, but not if it's smashing or squashing or throttling or somehow any of those kind of energetic things onto somebody else. Okay. So one's own internal capacity is constantly changing dependent on a whole variety of circumstances. And so then what is needed, rather than just simply patience, is a whole variety of discernment and clarity and interest and understanding, persistence, equanimity and a certain amount of of resource in order to figure out well what's actually happening right now how am I relating to it and what is my capacity and then that those kinds of questions then gives an indication of well what am I up for now I'm sure all of us have experienced anger where we've been gripped by it and we're actually a little bit out of control well when we're a little bit out of control anger it is never skillful to you know to be out of control of anger and so it's helpful to back off in some ways or get some space around it now sometimes a relationship or a situation has enough depth and trust and respect in it that it can do damage control around being a little bit out of control with anger and make good use out of something that actually wasn't skillful you know and I've certainly seen that other monasteries where you know, somebody blows up with somebody else and then that actually ends up being a time for sharing about things that are important in a way which actually is skillful. But it can be deeply dismantling of trust and it can happen very quickly. And so I've also seen how, you know, people are careful in order to build a trusting relationship and in a moment of an outburst it dismantles it and it takes months to recover, you know. So... Being out of control with anger or being out of control with desire in certain circumstances usually doesn't have a good result. You know. So then one needs to actually see well, where was one at. Now, I've also experienced, and I imagine you have as well, though I don't know because I don't know each of your practice very strongly, that it's possible to have incredibly strong anger and incredibly strong desire and just be completely still with it. You know, It's moving through the system but there's no um, um, it's not being um, it's not driving behavior or thought or speech and one can actually just watch it come and watch it go and I remember a situation oh my goodness there was a trail of things that had happened that were just so difficult and I was absolutely furious I mean I was absolutely furious and the sister said to me she said what do you need I said I need to be on retreat and I don't want to see anybody and I don't care if the monastery burns down to the ground I don't want to know about it just leave me alone 
And so, more or less, she helped create the space where nobody came and told me or bothered me or hassled me or everything. And I was on retreat by myself for two weeks. And I spent two weeks being absolutely furious, walking up and down on my walking path, just fuming. But I didn't need to do anything else. That was enough, you know. And so to be that furious and to be on an intensive retreat for two weeks is quite a practice, you know. It's quite an intense practice. But there was enough capacity to hold it and I wasn't acting it out in any kind of way that was in any way unskillful either to myself or to anybody else. I just created the space to do what I needed to do and I was able to allow it to come, to do what it needed to do and to release. And so there was enough capacity in that context to manage it. If there isn't enough capacity to manage it, then one needs to do what one can in order to create the space where one can either discharge it, cathart it, um, somehow find um, purchase where one can get a little bit more space around it so that one can work with it. Now, the whole topic of how do you work with the kind of things that arise is a very large topic. And even the topic around anger. I mean, for myself, I come from, you know, a real big history of repressing anger. And so for me, I've had to learn all kinds of permission techniques of how to just allow it and feel it and tolerate it in my body. And doing it as a somatic experience, just tolerating anger as a body experience has been an important thing. And then there have been times when I've needed to throw rocks and holler and swear and curse and things like that as a way of just allowing it in and out and know that the world is not going to swallow me up and the Buddha is not going to strike me dead and that I will survive you know, a very completely boundary situation where I'm allowing this energy out in a way where my intention is not to harm anybody but just sort of to kind of clear the clear that energy from my system because it's bottled but there are other strategies that people have is to dump and so when they sometimes feel a little bit anger out comes the lashing tongue and you know people can get just shredded in a second you know or these poisoned barbed arrows get just targeted directly at the most vulnerable spot you know and so for people who have that kind of strategy, what's needed is to develop more skill in being able to contain the energy and allow more heat, tolerate more heat. And so the image that I had that worked for that was is that, you know, for many years, I think four or five years, I, I looked after the workshop at Amravati, which was this huge place. It was like two times the size of this room. And it had all kinds of tools and materials and stuff in it and and in it was a potbelly stove that had been engineered and built by one of the monks that was made out of thick cast iron. And you could open up the lid so that you could put a whole garbage can full of trash in it. And you could put tree trunks that were six feet tall in it. And I used to clean up the workshop and throw it all in there and keep the, the terps. Do you call it terps in this country? Spirit? What do you turpentine? Yeah. That I'd use to clean the brushes. I'd save it and put it in the in the in the fire and light the match and it goes. <laughs> but it was strong enough; it could hold the heat. And so sometimes the metal would get red hot because I'd really packed it full and doused it really good, and it would just and it would shake. But it would hold the heat. Okay. And when it held the heat, it wouldn't spill out on the floor. It wouldn't burn the building down. And it wouldn't destroy all the material and it wouldn't hurt any people. 
But if it didn't hold the heat, if it actually cracked open, then we'd have actually quite a significant problem. Okay. So with that kind of strategy that's used to dumping, that's used to targeting, that's used to articulating with the minutiae of detail about what is wrong with the other person that needs to be illuminated at this moment, what is actually helpful is to actually learn to hold the heat. And physically, it's actually like that. Learning how to contain that energy, feel how incredibly hot it is, and allow it to move around and spread out the body. And then, then what is needed is the patience to know that when one is feeling a particular way with all of this heat, one does not speak. And then when it has grounded and spread and it's not burning, there's a little bit more coolness. Then one can begin to entertain the possibility of speaking in a way where it's useful. So the criteria around speech which is helpful to consider is, is, is that is it true? Is it useful? Is it the right time? Do I have in my heart a sense of friendliness for the other person as I'm speaking? And have I examined in myself if I have actually uh, do these same things? So the patience factor to be able to determine when it's the right time to speak is something that has taken me a really long time to learn. And so because I know that when I am filled with a certain kind of emotion, the result usually is not very skillful, particularly with people for whom there's a fair amount of aggro as a kind of normal communication style. When people for whom there is a deep level of trust, then there's a lot, it's easier to risk because you've got a a basic ground of trust that you can return to. So if it gets a little bit out of hand, one can keep going back to that trust and that respect, which is very soothing and ameliorating. Now, I have waited for well, in one situation, 17 years before I had a conversation with a person because the conditions were not right. Okay? Now, that waiting was a burning. It wasn't an easy waiting. And yet, when the conditions finally ripened, the conversation followed in a way that was actually very useful. I was able to speak without blaming, without hurting, without harming, to speak my own experience in a way where I felt heard and received, and it was actually very useful. But this also goes into Anne's question, is is when is it actually not useful to be patient? You know, when is it actually useful to bring things up and talk about it, even if the conditions aren't completely perfect in order for them to be there? And again, I think it has to do with If in waiting one observes that precepts are being transgressed, a basic sense of uh, of respect for one's own um, uh, needs is being uh, disregarded, one's own uh, capacity to manage what's happening is, is diminishing, then these are all things of saying, well, you know, okay, I can see that the situation is not quite ready yet, you know, and I can see that these qualities may be useful to have and they're not here, but it feels so important to me that I'm going to risk trying to speak anyway. And so sometimes one of the ways that one can do that is is, is that 
you know, if if something happens between two people and it needs to be cleared and it hasn't completely cleared yet, you know, one can acknowledge the fact that I'm not completely resolved around this and I'm not entirely sure if this is the right time. And yet I'm afraid that if I wait longer, something else is going to happen, which is actually not helpful. So one can take responsibility for the fact that all those conditions are not present, but it still feels like it's the right time to speak, to risk it. So with speech and with all of these things, I don't think it's a question so much of patience as it is a question of navigating the whole internal emotional territory of what arises when all this stuff comes up. And again, you know, this is not a small topic. You know, I think, I think many of us on a piece of paper would be able to write down what's correct and what's not correct in terms of behavior. You know, that's not a... That's not a... Um, you know, as an abstract concept, it's not difficult to figure out that you don't hurt people, you know, and that you, you know, that's not, that's not too hard. But the problem is, or the challenge that most of us deal with, is not as an abstract concept, but the reality of all of the kind of emotions that come up in the situation and navigating them to enable us to be able to respond in a way which is skillful and congruent with our value system. And that is not easy, you know. That's just not easy. And so it takes a certain amount of resource to be able to first know what it is that we're feeling and then be able to discern how we're relating to how we're feeling and then to apply whatever um, skills that we have in order to either get some space around it if there isn't enough uh, reflectiveness and mindfulness or to be able to moderate it in a way where um, we can take responsibility for what we're feeling in a way which is uh, minimizing the kind of damage that will happen. You know, and many of us come from patterns that just really are not very wholesome. And so, when we're trying to change them into wholesome patterns, from a place of not having either good models or good patterns or good skills around some of these things, there also needs to be a certain amount of patience that we have for ourselves. You know, we start out and we get it all wrong. You know, and then as we get it all wrong, we remember, oh yeah, this is not the right way. What I actually am wanting to do is, is like that. You know, so it's not a, a kind of a commandment or an expectation or a thing that you know from the from the very beginning we we everything that we do is perfect, but that starts with the intention not to harm and the willingness to move away from patterns which aren't helpful towards. Uh, styles of communication relating behaving which are more helpful and all of that comes from having more understanding of one's own internal world more clarity about what's actually happening inside how one's relating to it and uh, an ability to discern what one's capacity is you know so you know I, I have been through a couple situations where somebody blew up and it was very very harmful and it took a really long time for trust to be reestablished, even to begin to talk about it, even in the most gentle kind of uh, way. You know, and there was, like, let's sort it out right now. It's like, you know, let's do it this now. And I was like, I don't have the capacity, you know. I can't talk about it right now. I need more time. So as I have been able to be able to more discerning about my own capacities, then my own skill level has increased. 
So that comes back to the assumption that we are supposed to be wise and loving and kind and capable and giving and um, at all times, under all circumstances, for all people, no matter what's going on. And the kind of background, you know, just the kind of background assumption. <laughs> you know, and it's actually, well, you know, it's a lovely idea. But the reality is, it just does not work that way. So that brings us into the next topic, which is the honest relationship of what's actually happening and what do I actually have the capacity for right now, independent of all my ideas about how I'm supposed to be and the expectations, you know, and the wishes and the hopes. You know, what am I actually up for? So this whole realm of working with things in a patient and intelligent and clear way is also very strongly fed by discernment and truthfulness. You know, what's happening? How am I relating to it? And what is my capacity? My actual capacity, not my wished-for capacity. And all of that takes a certain amount of self-reflection. You know, we can't get there by good thinking or hopeful ideas. And I've certainly gotten there by making lots of mistakes lots of times, you know. And I don't get it right a lot of the time, but I, you know, I'm a little bit better. So, some reflections. Are there any questions that arise from what I've said? Does it resonate with your own practice, your own experience? Very much. Mm-hmm. I like that what I think what I'm going to take away is is um, comparing to the precepts and uh, how does your action or reaction measure up to that? Instead of just going on gut feelings. Gut feelings are great when they have been um, honed and tuned and grounded in some kind of relative objective container that can look at it from a slightly different and less emotional perspective. Then one, uh, I mean, one always needs to look at one's gut feelings and see what they're what are there. But when they don't have any frame of reference to view them from, uh, gut feelings can be a mixture of intuition and emotional reaction. So lovely, lovely insight. I'm gonna take the image of uh, of containment of, of anger. With a with a with a large pot belly cast iron stove and, mm-hmm. and just kind of wait it out and let it burn out before uh, before you open the door. But um, 
from from my practice, what I what I was hearing, what what I have been able to apply in small small doses, is that I'm I'm, that I'm aware that everything is temporary, um, and that would include, I believe, my emotions and my feelings. And so, uh, when uh, the emotion of anger or frustration something that comes up I've relied upon that truth uh, exclusively just to wait it up and, uh, and let it sort of bottom up and that's uh, that's my experience just knowing that uh, and, and it's truth so far uh, that everything just sort of comes and comes and rises and passes and that I believe it comes I, I would say that it absolutely is true that emotions and feelings change. However, one of the things that needs to happen is, is that the whole world of relationship needs to be included in our practice. And so in the early days in the monastery, there was this kind of motto, shut up and watch your mind. And that was sort of like the panacea that was supposed to sort out everything. Now, there's certainly a certain amount of value in recognizing that the the buck stops here and how one is relating to something is something that one needs to take responsibility for. But we live in community and there's constantly things that are arising that are not only dependent on my relationship with what's happening in my own mind but what's going on in relationship with another person and how they're responding. And this was something that the sisters had to learn. We had to learn because it was so painful. It was so incredibly painful what was going on in the community that we didn't have a choice not to learn this. And so a big work that the sisters did was to begin to see how what is needed is not only a self-reflective process about what's arising but an interrelational process about what's actually happening that these things are being triggered and some way of holding the ground to be able to negotiate what's just happened and why So what you say is correct and it's something that happens a lot in a spiritual community that that's the underlying assumption. But the other whole part of life is is that we are constantly in relationship. And it's not helpful to use that truth which is an absolute truth in order to bypass or dismiss the whole world of relationships. It might be helpful to use us to give us more skill with relationship, but not to bypass it. Is that enough for anything?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.